Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. My name is Doug Moister. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I'm by myself right now. Uh, Bob has some things that he has to do, and I'm just going to kick off this interview that we have coming up. But before I jump into that, just wanted to take a moment and say, uh, yeah, happy Advent. I know Advent has just started. Many of our churches are are jumping into this season. We've We've been planning and preparing and getting ready for all that is to come in the next few weeks on the march towards Christmas. But I just wanted to pause and invite you all to actually take a moment and experience Advent, just to allow the anticipation and the waiting, this weary world rejoicing at the coming of our King. Um, it's been a hard year. For, for many of us, it's been a hard few years. And so our prayer with, at the Monday Morning Pastor is that God would meet you where you are, that you would sense weariness beginning to dissipate in your soul and new things being born again in you. So may God meet you where you are this morning uh, or this afternoon or this evening, or even if you're up super late at night listening to this podcast, we just pray that you would see new things being born in your life in this season. guest today is Winfield Bevins. He is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary and is the author of several books, including Ever Ancient, Ever New, and The Marks of a Movement. Uh, we are talking to him today about his newest book, Liturgical Mission, which really spells out some super practical, super helpful things for pastors and church leaders as we think about how liturgy shapes us and how liturgy actually fuels and shapes the mission of the church. Um, also, we just really enjoyed hanging out and talking with Winfield Bevins, and you may recognize that his voice sounds like a very famous Hollywood actor, and he, he has said that, yes, he do, has done some voiceover work for him. Just kidding. But we hope you enjoy this conversation with our friend, Winfield Bevins. Oh, Winfield, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you have worn several hats throughout your life. I, I'm wondering if you could give our Monday Morning Pastor podcast uh, listeners some context uh, as to where you've been and what you do now. Yeah, so um, over the years, I've you know I've pastored churches, um, planted um, churches. I've uh, kind of my journey was you know, I kind of came out of kind of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, became an Anglican. And my day job now is I direct the church planning initiative at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is kind of where I kind of write and work from. And it's uh, really exciting. I oversee kind of a global church planning initiative. And literally, we work with leaders from all around the world. And so, you know, we we're joking right before we got on the whole idea of like, you know, the Monday Morning Pastors podcast. I love it because, you know, old pastor told me a long time ago, he said, never quit on a Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's uh, a good word. It, a good it's word. a good word. And, you know, uh, for the audience to a bit of context, I, I, I'm really passionate about serving and coming alongside and helping leaders. Like uh, I've been studying and looking into pastoral health and longevity for over a decade. And uh, some of my personal research that I teach on here at Asbury is, um, you know, soul care for pastors and leaders. So they make it for the long haul. So excited to be with you guys this, uh, today. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I well, and I, I want we're, we're really excited. We actually we have you on to talk about your your newest book, which I'm super pumped to get into. But before we do that, that passion you just spoke of about seeing pastors have healthy rhythms and and be healthy for the long haul. Where does that come from for you? Like, is that out of a personal story? Is that out of a personal space of pain or what? No, absolutely. I was, um, I was about three years into our church, our last church plant and, um, was being, you know, successful by all the world standards was kind of, but was just going hard and, kind of on the verge of a place of burnout, I would say. I didn't even know it. It didn't have language. They don't teach you this stuff in seminary. And a guy about an hour away from me um, came home one Sunday morning, same age, kids the same age, young family. Um, This was back around 05. And he'd gone multi-site. It was a large church, grew fast, um, came home on a Sunday and committed suicide. And I just remember that just rocked me. And, um, you know, how did the church fail him? You know, is that, is that going to happen to me? Like, it just really sent me down kind of a journey. And I began to interview long-term um, pastors who were models of health and longevity. I mean, they were like Bigfoot, you know, like, these. <laughs> you know, you got to really search and look. And just kind of started my own kind of, uh, person. It started as a personal research project, and I've just—it's been a, a ten-year thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I've just kind of put before the Lord anytime, especially with church planning leaders, I always will address the issue of mm-hmm. you know self-care and burnout because I've seen what it can do. I've experienced it um, to an extent. Um, some people experience it, and it just is completely devastating. I've seen leaders lose everything. So it's it's something that's really I'm passionate about. I'm glad you guys are doing this to to help leaders. So excited to be here with you. And uh, you know, I just briefly shared uh one of my best friends, Mark Dunwoody, who's in Ireland, he and I at the beginning of the pandemic launched a global um coaching training platform called Healthy Rhythms Coaching. And we've mm. co-written a book together and it's all about healthy rhythms for leaders. Mm. Yeah. That's fantastic. And we'll make sure we include that in our show notes. And yeah, so, you know, you're, you're the executive director for the Center of Church Multiplication at Asbury. Um, and you, you're interacting with, with just some beautiful minds and beautiful ideas. What did, what did this, this juncture in our culture is really encouraging to you? And what are concerns that you have as you're sort of looking out at the landscape of things? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, again, the last few years have just been crazy. Doesn't matter where in the world you're at, like global leaders are dealing with the fallout of the pandemic. North America, um, uh, you know, has been an unusual landscape with the whole pandemic. Uh, what I think it's done is that I think it's brought, the last couple of years have kind of just brought to the surface stuff that was already there. And some of the most exciting things for me, one is it's really opened the way for emerging leaders um, you, you've got a lot of kind of emerging multi-ethnic leaders that are given a voice and a platform, uh, women leaders are stepping forward. So there's a lot of really exciting kind of, uh, opportunities. Uh, I feel like the landscape is just, it's just kind of like the wild west right now in a, in a good way. 
where the Lord's just kind of opening some doors for some some new fresh voices in the church. There's new models of ministry. You have kind of a shift in some ways um, where there's a lot of new things going on. My concern with it, which kind of brings us back to the book, is, you know, new is, you know, just like bigger isn't always better, new at the expense of the old isn't always great either. And so it's kind of like, I, I don't think we need to reinvent the church as much as kind of rediscover, you know, certain elements that root us in the past so that we can engage the future in a way that's contextual, that's fresh, but also rooted and grounded. So we don't kind of go off the reservation. And so those are some kind of concerns with some of the new kind of emerging models, if you will. Um, you know, it's kind of like we're always grasping for like, what's the new thing? What's the new silver bullet? And there are no silver bullets. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of a, you know, we could dig more into that, but that is a concern. Like in the midst of all of this, are we root are people are our new models of ministry continuing to stay rooted in um historic biblical orthodoxy. Those, those are some current concerns questions. Yeah. And then the issue of burnouts, another one. Yeah. Winfield, your, your last book, uh, ever ancient, ever new really delved into liturgy. And, and I think for many, uh, it, it opened up this world of liturgical worship, uh, that had previously been mysterious to them or close to them because they, that wasn't part of their tradition. In this latest book, Liturgical Mission, the work of the people for the life of the world, you're, you're making this connection between uh, our worship, our liturgy, and the mission of the church, what God has given to us. I'm wondering if you could just kind of unpack the two sides of that. What do you mean by liturgy? How are you thinking of worship in this, in this context and, and mission as well? Yeah, that's, that's really it, isn't it? Um, you know. You know, a lot of people kind of hear those things, liturgy and missions, like when the world, you know, it's like there's this kind of false dichotomy, if you will. Yeah. And one of the things I really dig into is actually the liturgy rediscovered and reappropriated and understood actually should drive us toward mission. Mm. And good worship, rich, you know, glad worship that's rooted in the scriptures. And, mm. and I think there's this historic framework for the liturgy that actually can be contextualized that moves us um, like a symphony has movements. These movements actually should move us toward mission. And that's mm -hmm. really kind of what I really dig into. And, you know, to, you know, back to definitions you asked, you know, um, you know, liturgy, you know, we think of liturgy as like this former formal structure. Um, but in the earliest sense, liturgy essentially is the work of the people. Uh, actually comes out of a secular term, which kind of carries the idea of doing something good for the common good of society. And so even in its origins, the word liturgy has this idea of people doing something together for some sort of common good. And I think rediscovering that root actually is pretty powerful. Um, and one of the things I look at in the, the fourfold structure, there's this fourfold movement throughout history that emerged in the life of the early church, and you have essentially gathering. We come together, we gather from wherever we are in the city or community we live. Could be in a home, doesn't, doesn't, you know, could be any, any kind of church or denominational background, but we gather together, and many of us already do that, right? 
Um, and then there's the hearing of the word, the second movements where we hear God's word. There's a sermon, homily, um, you know, that kind of we, we, we gather around to hear God's word, to worship. And then that moves us toward the table. And when we look at historic worship, it has always been word and table. And a lot of evangelical charismatics, low church traditions, we get the word, but we don't have the table. Yeah. We hear God's word, but with the tables where Jesus feeds us at the table, um, it's the, the, the Lord's table is missiological. There's a missiological orientation of the Lord's supper because we're reminded at the table, our differences no longer matter. The color of our skin no longer matters. The how much money you have in the bank account, the degrees hanging on your wall, none of that matters. It is Jesus who invites us and feeds us at that table. And it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a missional prayer. And so the table, the word and table kind of has this balance where it's the great equalizer. We're all one at that table. And then the fourth movement, we're prepared. We've sat at the Lord's feet. We've fed at his table. And then the fourth movement is the sending and this comes where the, 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 the ancient early church would use the term uh, Misa, where we have our, you know, the Roman Catholic call their service the Mass, which comes from the Latin word Misa, which means where we get the word mission. And it's where the priest would declare, go you are sent. And so the whole movement of a liturgical service is moving you back out into the world for mission. And I think that's really powerful. I think our worship should always um, conclude with the reminder that go you are sent back out in the world in mission. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I see good yeah. liturgy should uh, remind us who we are as a body of Christ, or it should remind us who's, who we belong to, and it should remind us of our mission um, to, to go back out in the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah, and, and and in this book, you're you're speaking and writing about a renewal in the church's witness and worship, wow. and I think our, our listeners can probably easily understand the need for renewal in our witness. Uh, but I'm wondering what you mean by renewal in our worship. Is it that kind of move back towards ascending worship, or is there more to it? Tell us what you're envisioning in a renewal of worship. Yeah, I think on one level, the first chapter I kind of lay out what I call there's, and this is new for maybe a lot of us, but there's been what's called the liturgical renewal movement that actually started in the 19th century um, in monasteries in Europe. And it was a recovery of early Christian forms of worship. And it was actually a renewal movement that fueled the ecumenical movement of the beginning of the 20th century. And what happens is um, at Vatican II around 1960, um, the, the the Catholic Church opens up its liturgy and moves away from Latin, the Latin, toward um, the language of the people. And at Vatican II, you have Protestant observers. And so they kind of start catching this. And it's kind of like something that God was doing globally and ecumenically all across the church. Well, it happens in the 60s and 70s, Protestants in the U.S. start embracing liturgy. And it's kind of scholarly, it's kind of high level at first, it's kind of highbrow, if you will, and it kind of trickles down through the water. Um, and one of the things that I look at in Ever Ancient, Ever New is there's this movement that's happening all across the U.S. Um, and of 
primarily younger leaders that are kind of maybe coming out of the evangelical movement. Maybe they're kind mm-hmm. of coming out of maybe charismatic Pentecostal and they're like, they don't want labels and it's just across the church and they're young leaders that are leading the future of the church that are saying, Hey, you know what? The future of the church actually needs to be rooted in the past. Um, but not like a straight jacket, but those, these structures, these the liturgy actually gives us a framework to actually experience the spirit in fresh new ways. Mm. So to use that language of renewal, um, I, I kind of see this recovery of tradition as a spiritual renewal movement in our day. I think it's uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Emilio Alvarez, who endorsed the book. He actually has a book coming out next month as well um, called Pentecostal Orthodoxy. He calls it an ecumenicism of the spirit. And I love that because I, I actually really agree with him. The spirit is doing something all across the church today, and it's kind of a new ecumenicism. This isn't like the old dead kind of liberal kind of like let's least common denominator to come around Jesus. This is no, this is like a Holy Spirit oriented recovery of rich Trinitarian worship uh, for the sake of the world that moves us toward mission. Um, Did any of that make sense, Bob? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, I imagine that a lot of pastors who are listening to this, for them, the, you know, there's the old Baptist joke that, you know, every church has a liturgy. Uh, they just, <laughs> they might not call it that, but, you know, it's like him, announcements, him, whatever. But for most uh, listening today, probably their church service looks something like, you know, we start with 20 minutes of worship and everybody stands up and we sing four or five songs and then there might be a welcome and announcements and then there's a sermon and then maybe we'll sing a closing song maybe we'll take communion but we'll go and i'm wondering for those that are really they're looking at this going i i the mission part grabs me i want that what's the what's the entry point in terms of the the renewal of worship like the liturgical piece where do they they're they're not Anglicans. They're they, that's not their background. What does that look like to renew their worship? Maybe, you know, yeah, some and, baby steps. And that's yeah, and that's kind of a hope of the book is that one that liturgical people will become more missional, mm. um, and then two that non-liturgical folk will become more liturgical in the sense of the worship being more intentionally formative. Yeah. Uh, in a way that uh, word and table worship, I think the yes. recovery of the the importance of, again, a sacrament. There's a, cha- I think one of the best chapters in there is the sacramental worldview chapter, the sacramental life, um, because this isn't something that's antithetical to our heritage. I recently, in a chapter for, um, contributed a chapter on uh, worship in the Reformation. Or in a book uh, dedicated to Scott McKnight, um, uh, where what's interesting is, as I did the research for that chapter, I, you know, what a lot of Protestants don't realize is that Calvin, Luther, these these great reformers were actually it was uh, it was a renewal of worship. Mm. It was highly they were highly sacramental. It was a recovery of the word and table. What they were coming against was just the table at the expense of the word, 
But what the reformers were arguing for wasn't a doing away with the sacramentality of a regular celebration of Lord's Supper, but they were saying, yes, we need this, but let's bring the Word of God with it. And I think today, this ecumenicism of the Spirit, many of us, if we're really honest, we've um, we've been we've raised and have been reared in kind of evangelical backgrounds. And again, I know that's a horrible word for a lot of people, but a lot of us, let's let's we're probably most of your listeners understand what I mean by kind of saying we've come out of some framework where a Bible church emphasis, you know, where mm-hmm. the Bible you get the preaching. Um, not necessarily the table. And, um, but some of us have also encountered the spirit along the way. We've had a charismatic encounter, if you will. Maybe we're not a card carrying, tongue talking Pentecostal, but we've experienced the Holy Spirit in some capacity. We're open to the gifts. We're seeking, you know, to be led by the spirit. And kind of one of the part of the paradigm that I'm arguing for, I think, is that there's this recovery of we need the word. It's not a rejection of the Word of God, not a rejection of Jesus, but it's a call to embrace the all that the church has to offer, everything that God is offering us. And wouldn't we want that? It's a call to go deeper. Uh, it's not a rejection of our of our heritage, but it's a fuller embrace of the Word with the table in the power of the Spirit for the sake of mission. And those would kind of be the movements. And I I think you're really hitting on something that I've noticed. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and it's a long time ago. It feels like a completely different lifetime. Um, But one of the things that I've been noticing is many of my former students have moved to Anglican or Orthodox or Catholic communities. And it seems like there's something about the depth of liturgy um, or the intentionality of liturgy that has really drawn... uh, you know, these, these, these young men and women into these more traditional spaces. And I think it's hard because my, my sense is even a lot of pastors that I talk to who work in, in more low church settings uh, are spending the majority of their time reading high liturgy people or people who are like talking about this stuff from deeper perspectives, because it, and I think you hit it right, because it feels like if I'm going to be really focused on formation around liturgy, and then that almost is is in it's in contrast to to mission. But I think it's like these things are beautiful as they come together, right? Like they don't they're not mutually excuse, exclusive, but they actually really work in in fantastic ways. So I think like as I'm thinking about that, my guess is you probably see that too. You're seeing people who are transitioning back or moving into older styles of worship. What like what are some of the causes of that? Yeah, I mean. So again, I wrote an earlier book that Bob referenced, um, Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation. I interviewed several hundred young adults across the U.S., just like what you described, all across the background. Some of them uh, were have become Roman Catholic. Some of them become Eastern Orthodox. Many of them become Anglican or Episcopal. But a large number of them were staying in their whatever kind of church context there, but they're reappropriating those practices. Mm. And that's kind of my thing is I'm not trying to make Anglicans. What I'm trying to call people to is a deeper, fuller embrace of the historic uh, ways of worship and mission. And I think these flow together. I call them streams. They're streams of renewal as you look at the history of the church. And I think, um, you know, in some ways, it's a rejection, you know, of kind of modernism. It's a rejection of, 
a dissatisfaction, if you will. There's actually a paradigm that I've outlined um, in uh, some of the research I've done is what I call a kind of a liturgical renewal paradigm where it begins with the dissatisfaction with the current state of the modern church. Now, this dissatisfaction is leading some to actually just leave the church, the rise of the religious nuns. We know about that. We're seeing this in the pews. Um, you've got people that are just leaving church altogether. But then there's this other group that's saying, you know what? There must be more. Uh, I'm not going to reject the faith, but maybe church history has something to offer. So one is a dissatisfaction. Two is a rediscovery, what I call a rediscovery of the historic roots of the faith. So maybe they start reading church history and they're like, wow, look at this stuff. I call it opening the treasure chest to church history. And um, that lead now reading about church history is not enough. That's not going to renew your faith, right? The reappropriation. What happens is as, as people begin to dig into the roots of the church, they realize that there's all this stuff, there's all these practices, liturgy. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you you go up into your grandparents' attic and you find some really cool vintage clothes that your grandfather wore, and you're like, can I put these bell bottoms on him when they send me? <laughs> I've got a joke. Um, but it's kind of this invitation, and renewal actually happens as people begin to reappropriate those practices for themselves, and that leads toward this synergistic renewal where, again, it's not a rejection of Jesus, it's not a rejection of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but it's this higher synthesis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's saying, I want more. I want everything that God has to offer me. And what's interesting is you talk to a lot of these young leaders, they're like, who's been keeping this stuff from me? <laughs> like, really, their creeds? Like, this is, we're arguing about creating new statements of faith, and there's there's actually this the early church developed this little paragraph called the Apostles' Creed that emerged in the life of the early, and it says it all. You know, I believe in God, the Father, maker of, you know, creator of heaven and earth, and his son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son. You know, like, you, it affirms all this stuff, um, and it's there. And so that's kind of what I'm doing in, um, in my writing is I'm inviting Christians to claim what is already theirs by birthright. Um, I don't believe that this stuff belongs to one particular tradition. Yeah. And one of the things I argue in in the book is the missional church. I've been working in the missional church for well over a decade. Like, man, I could name drop. I mean, you could look at people who've endorsed my books. Like, I know these people. What's missing is the depth of liturgy, the depth of the practices of, you know, the daily office, the church calendar. There's so much that church history has to offer us. Mm. And it doesn't belong to one tradition. Right. Now, I'm Anglican, but I'm not trying to make Anglicans. I'm trying to make deeply formed disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm. And whatever denominational body, whatever's at the, you know, the, the, the name on, on the name of your church doesn't really matter to me. I want to I I see deeply formed disciples of Jesus go deep and and who are going to go deep and go long and i think really it's almost like those two the, the passion that you have for seeing healthy leaders really is deeply connected to this yep. this ancient yep. faith right this faith that like 
you know, these, these people that went before us, these saints, these mothers and fathers of our faith, they were people that didn't just go do a bunch of stuff all the time. Like they had these robust prayer lives, right? They had this, they oh. prayed, they prayed the hours. They, you know, they wrote the hours. I mean, there was this, this intentionality of life. And I think it comes back to even the loss of sacrament within our community, with, within our communities and how, you know, so I'm thinking about the pastor who's like, we don't have ASAP, you know, every every six months we we yeah. look at the table so like even thinking how do you even begin to help pastors and churches begin to rediscover sacramental life or sacramental language and I, yeah well that's the book and i actually think you just named it so thank you because that kind of that experience that i mentioned at the beginning is what led me toward this was my own personal need for formation my own discovery of church history Kind of like for years, I was like reading church history, but I was never actually doing the stuff. And then I realized I can actually, that that belongs to me. I can actually, that really cool stuff that those guys are doing, those those ancient prayers, actually, I can pick up and pray those prayers. And um, one of the things my friend in Ireland, Mark, and I look at, we had a powerful encounter in 2017. We were doing some stuff up in the north of England. And we kind of went up, we kind of made our way up into Scotland, and we we had a little retreat on Lindisfarne Island. And for those of you that don't know Lindisfarne Island, it's where St. Aidan of Iona um, came to evangelize the north of England and was was given this tiny little island um, as a home base. And it became the mission sending center uh, that evangelized the whole of the north of England. And what I love about Lindisfarne is twice a day it becomes an island. And what happens is as the tide comes in, it's, it submerges completely surrounded by water. And as the tide goes out, um, the causeway opens up to where you can actually go back into the mainland. It's actually dangerous. You got to know the tides when you're trying to drive um, onto the island. And that actually formed the spirituality of those Celtic missionaries, monks that um, came to the north of England, whereas what I call ebb and flow spirituality or missional spirituality, where we retreat to be with God um, so that we can go back out in the world and mission. And in the introduction, I talk about this, where it's kind of like spiritual breathing. We inhale in worship to exhale in mission. And I think that's what a lot of pastors, maybe there's a lot of you that are listening right now, and you're like, man, that's it. I'm, 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 I've exhaled so much, I got nothing left to give. I'm completely mm. depleted. And this is really a call for us to pause and to breathe in the rhythms of grace, breathe in um, the, the worship and prayer that is going to root and ground us in the faith so that we can go back out and exhale in mission. Yeah, and I think for maybe for a lot of leaders who uh, they know our church should be, there's an outward facing component. There's a mission component to our life together, but we're really struggling to move people out into that. The vision that you have here is it's really that moving worship from this kind of uh, me-centered, uh, 
at its worst consumeristic kind of like we we go we have an experience of god it's it's about me and him you're really talking about moving worship into this realm of formation for mission mm. so that people as they come in they themselves are renewed in relationship with god and with each other and the worship just naturally begins to send them out and it forms them for that specifically sorry there's no question there <laughs> I, just... I think that's it and the other gift for i would just encourage leaders like why does this matter maybe some of you are listening like i hear this like it matters for you because yeah. if you can help shift your church more toward a historic liturgical i'm not saying give up or contemporary forms of worship and times of kind of spontaneous prayer or openness to the spirit. But what it does is it like the church calendar is a gift because it provides rhythms and scriptures to where you don't have to be winging it from week to week and you don't have to be making it up on your own. If you've listen, I've pastored for 20 years. Like, and so at some point you come to a point where like, you know, I've I've read all the sermon prep books, I've done all the stuff. Like, is there something else I could look to? And again, the church has all of these great gifts um, that are actually will help you as a leader to step back and let the service actually be more God-centered, you know, and it points people more toward the kingdom and the table allows you to pause and actually have a moment of worship for yourself to where you're not just doing the worship for the people, but you're inner. And that's what the liturgy is. We're entering into the worship where it's the work of the people um, coming together. Yeah. And what a great I, encouragement. I think. So good. <laughs> so good. And I think that there's such, there's such a freedom in those moments to recognize how when it becomes, when you're gathering, when your worship gathering becomes a work of the people, you yeah. end up taking a back seat. Like the greatest Sundays for me are yeah. when my role is to introduce the preacher or where, where my role may be to lead prayer or to, to watch other people lead folks to the table or see people invested in the life of, of our formation together as disciples of Jesus. Um, but yeah, we've, I've, we could probably talk for a long, long time about this. And we also want to make sure that we're we we're actually recording on a Monday morning, which is like not normal uh, for us. But I think that there's something about that, and even just the tone of this entire conversation. But Winfield, could we ask you to leave our folks with the benediction? Yeah, you know, as we were sharing, um, a, a prayer came to mind. If it's okay, the, a prayer that's attributed to Saint Aidan. That's a really beautiful prayer for leaders. Um, I'll, I'll give you a link. The, the funny thing is the best-selling book I've ever done is this little red prayer book. It's called The Field Guide to Daily Prayer, and you can only get it on seedbed.com. And it's a little scout book. It's like a little cardback, cardback or like a cardboard cover, and it lasts forever. And it has sold tens of thousands of copies. Pastors will buy them and just hand them out to leaders, and it's basically morning and evening prayer and then some of my favorite prayers of the saints. And so you can, anyway. And I, I just included some of my favorite prayers in there. And I'd love to just close with the prayer of St. Aidan that has that ebb and flow spirituality for the leaders that are listening. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Leave me alone with God as much as may be. As the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, 
make me an island set apart, alone with you, God holy to you. Then with the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond. The world that rushes in on me till the waters come again and hold me back to you. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnership's free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnerships.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.